You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, guys. Welcome to another episode of The Perth Property Show. I'm your host, Trent Fleskins. Today, we are talking about the fundamentals behind construction, building your own home in this market in 2019 in Perth versus buying established and the realities. There are some pros and cons on both sides. To talk in a most arm's length way about this, I haven't got a builder in, I've got a valuer. (laughs) That valuer is my man, Brendan Ptolemy. G'day Trent, how are you today? Good mate, thank you for coming in. This obviously isn't something that most people would think a valuer could talk about, but actually this is part of what you see every day. It's part of what you have to value. It's the land portion and it's the build portion. Yeah, so uh, for people that don't know, if they go to apply for a home loan or go see their builder and buy a house and land package, those kinds of scenarios, even if they're uh, refinancing to do an extension and renovation or knock over an old house and build, Uh, the value is going to more than likely be involved at some point in time because the banks see this as a a risky type of transaction and they want to know that it's going to be worth X dollars, you know, the dollars that it's costing their customer at the end of the project. At the end of the day, your business would see hundreds of build contracts come across your desks every month. Yeah, right? absolutely. You yeah. need those build contracts to justify what you're valuing. Yeah, yeah, spot on. So we go through all of those contracts. We're always looking at construction costs, uh, analyzing those. And you know, one of the, the quirky things we find is not every single construction cost is the same. So if you look at the project home marketplace, uh, we'll, we, we can quite frequently see the same contract for a pretty similar build from the same builder with some numbers that are quite different. Yeah, mm, That's called kickbacks. <laughs> oh, it might be. It just might be called driving a hard bargain too from the customer's point of view, which I thought would be a useful for a thing for us to talk no, that's about. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a really good point in that this of any time in my generation, I think, is the best time for someone to come off the street and drive a hard bargain with the builders. Yep. They've never been so low on work. They've never been so low on staff from their own choices, their own cutbacks. But... Uh, what that has allowed for is for the best people in those businesses to be retained, the best talent, yep. best services, the best tradies to be subcontracted out to build your home. Yep. Uh, but it also allows for the customer to get exactly the home they want with the time taken they need to make that home what it needs to be, yep. built as quickly as it could ever be built. And for the lowest margins, the builders are probably ever going to provide you. Yeah, so uh, unfortunately, the construction industry really is struggling. As you alluded to, there has been a lot we of We don't wish it upon them. Absolutely We just not. recognize it. Yeah, and, and really what we're trying to do here is identify something to be counter-cyclical and, and that the market can take advantage of that works for everybody. So mm. let you know, people should be out there. If they had considered building a house, whether that be as a first-home buyer or an upgrade-type buyer or a knock-over-and-build type buyer, this is a great time to get out there and do it. Uh, and, and I find a lot with construction, especially when it's your second or third home, people sit around thinking about it for a really long period of time. And I understand that. I've just built a house. It is a slightly traumatic experience. It's very <laughs> emotional. It's very personal. Once you've picked, once you've built it, you can't unbuild it. Yeah, and it takes a lot of time uh, and it takes a lot of decisions. Uh, so you've got to be prepared for that. The, the overriding factor here is that there's a lot of people uh, sitting around with not too much work to do at the moment and a lot of builders being extremely competitive in their pricing. Mm. They've been continually dropping prices pretty much over the last two, two and a half years in our marketplace. And so that says to me, 
If you have been thinking about this or you know that you're going to do this into the future, then now is the time to be out there and making decisions about it. That's the, that's the theme, I think, of this one. It really is to understand and recognize that if you were going to build, now is the time to get involved. Call, whether it's a project builder or a custom builder, uh, you're never going to get a better bargain than I think now. This is the darkest before the dawn in the construction industry, in my opinion. Yep. Uh, so if you're waiting another year or so, the builders are going to need you a little less than they need you now. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we're focused on being independent as valuers. That's our positioning with our customers, the banks. Um, and so, you know, we don't have any alignment to any of the builders. We just know from what we see each day that there are uh, some cheap contracts. Some really cheap contracts coming through. Yeah. yeah. So probably at, at the bottom end of the market, uh, first home buyers, uh, there's obviously a $10,000 first home owners grant there waiting for the from the government. That's a huge attraction. $10,000, you know, that's a lot of money for someone that doesn't have a deposit in the bank. Mm. Uh, what we'd encourage people to do is use that as wisely as possible. So you need to go and shop around. You need to buy a, a block of land. So traditional valuer angle on this is go and find a block of land in a location that is fantastic, the best that you can afford. Mm. And choose that before you go and start talking Separate to the builder. Separate the two. Do not yeah. let the builder assist you with your purchase of land. Yes. So that's you know that's a really simple tip. Uh, and what we're talking about here is the way that things used to be done. So lots of first home buyers. If you go talk to your mum and dad, that's how they would have built their house and bought yeah. their block of land. They would have driven around the suburb and go, I like that street, I like that block of land, or I like the proximity to the park, or whatever drives that choice. So use that to go and uh, as your first starting point and, and make sure you're in the right estate. So have a look around at branding of estates, who the developer is, which side of the road it's on. Uh, they're, they're the fundamentals that you want to assess and say, look, I want to be in the best one that I can afford. Yeah, yeah you don't want to be a part of that value chain either where you go to the builder and the builder gives you the list of their available houses which work for them, uh, where they've got their own builds going on next door. It really should be a case where you're separating that decision. Uh, land goes up, houses go down over time, right? So it, the most important decision, whilst you still want to have a house you love, is still the location, the piece of land you buy. Yeah. Make that a separate decision. Buy that first cop a little bit of holding interest in the time it is what it is but in the long run be worth that much more to you than being stitched up in a house and land estate that suits the builder and not you yeah then you go to the builder say this is my land i've got finance i want to build this house this is my budget yeah and there's nothing to say that people wouldn't go and choose their house first and then going looking for that block but we're just advising them to separate those two yeah that that process now the, on the on the building side of things uh they want to go to a reputable builder with a really good brand name there's a couple of builders in Perth who are the biggest in, in Australia basically yeah. so isn't that you know, funny though we have 10% of the market we have builders that are actually the biggest in Australia yeah uh, and you know there's a lot of construction in that marketplace or in our marketplace so you want to to, to find a reputable brand across them or, or, or below them and you want to go in there and drive as hard a bargain as possible so number one sort out what you want to build uh, number two don't get carried away with add-ons and and bling i'd, I'd yep. call it so my, my favorite example here is we went through a, a period in the marketplace where everyone allegedly needed a butler's pantry 
um, even in the first home buyers market, just yeah. about there was butlers' pantries everywhere. It, it, stand back and have a look at the practicality of the way you live and what you can afford. How many bottles of tomato sauce do you need? <laughs> um, and let, let's just build the place to the, to what you can afford. And and so I'd before you even in with those builders, I'd be writing down the list of what you need. You know, you, is it non-negotiables and yep. also if I can get it for the right price, this but no more. Yeah, they're very good builders at giving you the mo- 90% right of what you want and then stitching you up at pre-start where they have higher margins. A lot of the builders pay their pre-start consultants commission to jack you up at the last to add the waterfall sides to the stone bench top, yep. to add the extra lights, to upgrade the the faucets and things like that. Make sure that you are very clear on the spec and the inclusions you want before you sign that contract. Absolutely. And pre-start should be a zero game thing for you because that's where all the margins are made. Yeah. Yeah. And also just where those choices are made. We've talked about the fact there are a lot of decisions to be made here. Unfortunately, it takes a lot of time to sit down and say, right, these are my priorities. Uh, and you need to be firm about, okay, do I want the waterfall bench top or am I going to put that money into putting an extra few lights in the living area, uh, upgrading the basins or the bench tops in a, in a, in a bathroom, uh, landscaping outside. There's so many different options to be had here. Uh, but get the fundamentals right first. Am I having a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house and how much living area can I afford to, to build? Do I need a four-by-two? Is it a three-by-two with a study nook that's off the living area because that's how we're going to live yeah. our life. We're, we're going to be sitting in a laptop overseeing the kids while you work from home those kinds of concepts think about how you're going to work uh, sorry how you're going to live in your house yeah so let's flip it over to the other side we've spoken about getting the most and and identifying that we're gonna we should be getting the most of a build contract in this market right now in perth however i think if we're both very frank about this the reality is it's still cheaper to buy an established home in perth right now if that's what you want yeah so uh as valuers what we do is go and value those construction loans so land value plus the cost of the house uh and what our client is saying to us what the the lender is saying to us is is that going to be worth those two components traditionally in a rising market and in our Perth market, yeah, we, we you know, this sounds really facetious, but our job was sometimes as hard as saying land plus building, that's equals value because all the places around that that new construction loan are transacting at that same cost to build. Some valuers still do. <laughs> they do, potentially. Uh, and, you know, some of my guys will be doing that every day because the numbers make sense. What we've seen in this marketplace in the correction is that the established dwellings are correcting in price. That means underlying land values correcting in price and construction costs are going down so technically the co- that the, the value of the house that was just built has gone down and so we're seeing established dwelling sales that are below the cost to replace in terms of buying land and, and building the house yeah i guess it really is just a personal decision here if you want a brand new house uh, brand new you're gonna have to build it it'll cost what it will build but yep. it's the best time to be getting the best price for that yeah if you're open to buying established the reality is that's still uh, which is why you're not seeing a lot of houses being built, which will obviously in the future lead to prices increasing because there's a low so increase in supply. Yep. Um, if you are still happy to buy established two, three-year-old properties, there are some serious discounts on the value of those places. Yeah, absolutely. And so what we've been doing is uh, encouraging people to have a look at what that discount is and what they can afford, even going away to maybe save some monies so that they can get their deposit together to buy established because that potentially is a better use of their money than taking the $10,000 that's free. I know mm. it's $10,000. I know it's free. Yeah. But potentially taking that $10,000, you're turning it into, we've seen 
some people turning that into negative equity. Yeah. Uh, Straight away. By, yeah, and by that I mean that they're $30,000 down. So you've taken your, your free 10 and turned it into minus 30. Yeah. Let's just think about whether that's a logical thing to do with your money. What will it take for that paradigm to change where when the, we flip? When we flip it to the yeah, point okay. where the build contract people could actually build for less than the prevailing established market is selling for right now what happened how does it how does that come about how do those fundamentals change so essentially we we see demand increasing and we see the established dwelling supply uh, dry up and so we go back to the fundamentals of why people used to build houses and that was because they would look around and go there's nothing established that suits my needs there's nothing established on the market just about. Uh, so I better just go build my own house because there's land. no supply. Yep. Uh, and so that's that's where we'll get to again at some point in time. But we're a fair, a fair way away from that at the moment. Yeah. Is, is that because the reality is right now, we actually don't need to build anything right now. We're still, we're still soaking up supply as much as we have been for quite a while. But still right now in this month of the market, we're still at a point where we actually don't need to add any more supply and therefore the market's not rewarding you for doing so. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a fair assessment. Yeah, the market isn't a uh, set scientific model. Um, if, if it was everybody able to control it, we'd all say, look, take all those people who got a career in the construction industry, we're going to put them over here and they can do something else for a little while. Uh, obviously, uh, they still have the normal operation of a demand and supply in a normal economic cycle so there's still demand for for people to come and supply that product they're still encouraged to supply that product through mm. some motivations like first home buyers grant and, and we will get back to a stage where there's enough people coming into perth wanting housing uh that will will essentially drive that growth yeah yeah essentially the second it becomes cheaper to build the construction industry starts going through the roof again yeah. and it becomes therefore more expensive to build too yep. expensive to build it's a balancing act all the time yeah what we're seeing though the reality is people are still paying more for the brand new product than the established, yep. right? It's still quite interesting that whilst, you know, on one side you can look at it, that it is, you know, cheaper to buy two, three years old than it is to build. People are still paying for that brand new product at a premium as well when they're selling. Yeah, and look, as valuers, we're happy to see that sometimes. Sometimes we completely understand that someone has decided that the best, their best option is to build the house, their house of their dreams. We see that more frequently in second and third home dwelling construction where we might think that it's overcapitalized or they're spending a little bit too much money but when you read through the floor plan and the construction cost and 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 the finishes you sit there and go oh, okay i get this i see why these guys are doing it because they've got a dream of having you know the house up against the pool or the the house on the bigger block and so they're building it slightly bigger than than the average those kinds of concepts we don't mind seeing that but the reality is these properties that are hitting the market brand new yeah they are selling for a big premium based on choice of the buyer, uh, then the established property. It's like a property that's two or three years old at this point right now has a big discount compared to a brand new property. Yeah, so we just need to be careful about the new home, uh, new car type market yeah. hitting the new home market. Um, yeah. and, and we definitely have seen that changed in, in this generation of uh, the bling on a brand new house uh, is definitely much more attractive to yeah. first home buyers. And, and People are buying yeah. them first right now. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And... and that gets down to a very individual thing lots of times too. Even though it's a trend, uh, once you go and dig below the surface, you'll see that the established places that aren't selling 
uh, are either poorly presented yep. or they're not quite as well designed as the as the new model that came out more recently. That's uh, very true. Yeah. A fantastic. As a suburb that I'm very deep in uh, when uh, right now in terms of our buying analysis and it's very easy very obvious to see that the houses that are built well and presented well have big bedrooms. They're selling at massive premiums to the market, yep. massive premiums. However, the ones that are on busier roads or have small bedrooms or don't have the spec required in that suburb are getting smashed. Yeah, yeah. Same square meterage of house, same age, brand new. Yep. Yeah, so Trent, this goes back full circle to if you're going to build, it's all about research. So you need to walk through those established houses, the ones that they're selling in that local area. Uh, you also need to do, I know this is a big word for lots of people, but the, you need to do a feasibility study on, on your own uh, single build. Not so, by the builder. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, and the feasibility study is really straightforward. Just go around and have a look at what's sold in the area and, yep. and you can buy those sales online from Landgate. You can get a whole sheet of sales. Yep. Uh, drive around and see what they've sold for, especially in new suburbs. So I'm going to build a house in the next stage of that subdivision. Let's go and have a look at what those established dwellings sold for in the in the previous stage and what they're selling for now. Therefore, how much can I afford to spend on my land and my construction costs to be below what those have transacted for? And on top of that, what spec specifically yeah. were those houses? Yeah, yeah. If you can't meet that spec and make money from the cost and you know, to get there, don't do it. Yeah. But if you can, then you've got evidence that people are paying for this particular spec at this price. Yep. And so one of the other resources there is is the local agent. Have a chat to them, especially notice because you, you should be deep in that market. That one came on the market and sold really quickly. You want to talk to that agent. Yeah. Go and find his next home open, her next home open and find say, hey, how and why. why did that house sell? And you get that feedback. Well, that one had big bedrooms or it was really well presented or the, the tiles in the bathroom were the perfect color or yeah. I think a lot of it uh, is also staging at the moment uh, when you are providing that full solution, not having anyone imagine, need to imagine what they're going to have when they live there. To be able to spend maybe a $3,000 staging package on these brand new homes, uh, I think is also a big factor yeah. when it comes to just getting the right price for the same home. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what people are doing there, what agents are doing there is setting the place up, decluttering it, setting up a lifestyle look when people walk through because the thing that they want that per- pers- prospective buyer to do is go, I can see myself They're buying a lifestyle. sitting there. Yeah, I can see myself sitting on that beautiful lounge, reading a book, uh, I always, I'm so cynical, I walk through and go, gee, I would love to sit on that lounge and read a book. But the last time I got spare time to read a book was three years ago. So it's not really driving my purchase decision. Yeah. I think I think those markets we're talking about there, when we're specifically talking about people that yeah. are happy to pay a premium for a lifestyle, are downsizers. Yeah. So if you're building, I think you should be building as an investor for a downsizer who has the money, has the liquidity, it's been sitting there, they've moved out of their old home uh, and they want a solution. Yep. Straight up. Yeah, yeah. Give them that solution, they can pay for it. Yeah. Now, the other other sector of the market that we've been seeing a little bit of activity uh, and, and probably uh, activity that potentially dried up through the uh, credit crunch, let's call it, was the upgrade or knockover and build type buyer. So the, the second or third home type buyer, someone's uh, moving into a slightly better suburb potentially from where they were or they're in a suburb where the housing stock is probably dated in relation to its location. Love those kind of mid-northern suburbs there where you've got a lot of three-bedroom, one-bathroom houses that could all do with being much bigger. They're on good-sized blocks. They're in good locations with yeah. great infrastructure around them. Just waiting for a brand-new build. Yeah, and so you, you, the market's at that stage where lots of those people that either own them or would look to buy them have that option of saying, hey, am I buying 
the three by one and doing a really ordinary extension because that they don't lend yeah. themselves to that yeah. or am i knocking it down and building a mid-range type four by two that's my lifestyle opportunity for the future so what we found there in in terms of doing lots of those valuations is that um they became really difficult to get through the bank for whatever reason, serviceability, as well as the bank thinking that it's a more risky mm. uh, loan to to write. So, um, well, it's you blokes with your values. <laughs> yeah, it's all our fault. Value, uh, <laughs> computer says no. Yeah, absolutely all our fault. Yeah. We're, t- we're going to take the blame. But really what I'm going to say to you is uh, it's time for those to, to be revisited. Have another crack. Yeah, so potentially whatever construction costs you were looking at back then at six to, to 12 months ago might have gone down. Yep. It'd be worth having another crack at that builder, even if it's the same builder, you go back and say, hey, look, you know, can you do this cheap because I deal. didn't get yeah. finance last time around? Serviceability has come down, obviously. Yep. Uh, and and obviously, uh, we think it's a great time to do that in terms of this is a good time from getting to build that house as cheap as possible. If you're going to go and buy the house and then knock it over and build it, it's a really good time to go and buy that product as well because there's less demand for it right at this moment. Mm. Brendan, that's a fantastic chat, I think, on the realities, the fundamentals between building and why, both for a family home and for an investment right now, and also buying established and the real discounts available if you were open to doing so as well. Yeah. Thanks for coming in. Trent, great discussion as usual. Cheers, yeah. mate. Cheers. Okay, suburb spotlight time now, and we have a very special and small suburb to talk about today. We are talking Peppy Grove. To help us with that conversation, we've got Peppermint Grove's number one agent. It's Mac Hall. Mac, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Looking forward to the chat. Uh, there's a lot of history in this suburb, very well uh, documented place, always hitting the top of the values list around the state and also the country. Uh, I guess there's some really beautiful houses as well to talk about too. But can you give us some fun facts, Mac, as to how this suburb started, maybe generally when, and I guess what the background of people first living there was? Well, the early settlers all lived in the big homes on Adelaide Terrace and St George's Terrace. So in the early 1890s, the famous Forrest family and a couple of the other well-known pastoralist families decided to secure this land which was called Butler's Hump in its day which was a farm about where the Albion Hotel is was the western boundary and uh, they did a subdivision there which was going to be like a, a Margaret River I suppose for uh, the St George's Terrace type people to get a, a, in a convenient spot close to the Fremantle and close to the city so it's about halfway. So 100 years ago Peppermint Grove was Margaret River. 130 years ago. Wow, eh? <laughs> Just to think of it today, that the commute we make to have that lifestyle and that mm. ability to get into nature, it's now a part of suburbia. Well, one of the, the really nice features of Petman Grove until the 70s was that they were all pretty big blocks. So uh, a, a Petman Grove half acre was the sort of standard block, 1,820-odd square metres, some were even bigger. Former Premier James, Walter James, he had a big place there. I mean, he had basically a farm. He had horses, he had cattle, he had sheep on it. Uh, That's now part of the Japanese consulate. Now, that's not to say that this suburb isn't still full of very big land holdings. You don't see many 500 square metre blocks in Pippermint Grove, if if not any. No, the the biggest one probably is 5,000 square metres. I sold that maybe 10 years ago. There's other ones which are closer to the highway, which are around 700-odd square metres. There's some denser properties right on the Stirling Highway where there's some apartments and things like that. But typically, the minimum lot size is around 750 square metres. Average would be in the thousands, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. When we think Peppermint Grove, I think we all, we generally think about the most well-off people in Perth. I guess also, though, there would be just a lot of people who have lived there for a long time, multi-generational families. Definitely. It's, a, it's, a, it's had a real social scene there. 
the Yacht Club is a massive uh, meeting point for most of the people at Royal Freshwater Bay Yacht Club. Pit, but the same precinct has got the Pittman Grove Tennis Club and the Manners Hill Park, which in fact was had a little golf course on it in the early days. So it was really the, but it's it's got the river, and that's the, been the main attraction there over the years. If there's anything that you would do to improve Peppermint Grove in terms of amenities or demographic, uh, you know, gentrification, is there anything that you think is a standout? You go, oh, you could really do with this. One of the things about it is the attraction is, in fact, the opposite to what you're hoping I might say, <laughs> uh, and that is that there is no real density. Uh, so there's no issues as far as developments and uh, things like that. So uh, it's not that complicated. But we are on the border of Cottesloe, with Stirling Highway being the divider. And the Napoleon Street retail section is really a great fun part for us is where you just cross the road and then you're in Cottesloe where all the commercial activity is. But look, there's only 550 houses approximately. Yeah, so it's a very small community. No one's going to make any money who wants to do anything uh, uh, dramatic in there. But uh, look, I think the fact that it's typically a single residential suburb uh, with some huge blocks, some, a few old houses that are being uh, all being restored. They're phenomenal places. Uh, I think that's part of the attraction. And then you've got the river. I don't think the residents there really want to uh, attract a lot more, a lot of people. Yeah, I would have thought. It, I guess it is a fairly insular place uh, uh, in in a lot of ways, in that it is hard to attain to afford to get there in the first place. But also, it's so tightly held that there aren't that many transactions every year either. So, on that point, we, you were just mentioning uh, properties that have been around for a long time, very beautiful. Is there a bit of heritage listing through there that might make it hard for someone to come in and buy and maybe upgrade the property? Look, the heritage is a contentious matter in the suburb at the moment because I think the current council have, have gone overboard a bit with their heritage. Uh, but there's some unbelievably magnificent homes. Like, you know, we sold one uh, a couple of years back for $17.5 million. The owner's spending a, an eight-figure amount on it, renovating yeah. it. Um, Restoring it. Yeah, so the, the, that gives you an idea of where that might be. Um, in the last year, we've, we've been selling blocks for around about the $4 million mark. Uh, and houses around the $8 million mark. The mean is $3.5 million, and I think if it's a reasonable, ho- a reasonable house in a reasonable position, that's going to walk out the door very, very quickly. So we're walking straight into that price uh, point as part of this, this segment, and uh, the first question I normally ask is, what's the cheapest I could buy for in Peppermint Grove? What's the cheapest you've seen in the last four or five years a sale will be in Peppermint Grove? It'll be around the million mark or something like that in Crossland Court or something like that. that what are you uh, getting for that? Uh, you're getting uh, something that is probably not reflective of the garden suburb. You're going to have to pay at least $2 million for something very basic. Well, look, the worst house in the best suburb or best street has always been a saying. So uh, I guess anyone who has uh, that ability and maybe sticking to that ethos, uh, it's still an option. Well, that was my case when I bought in there in 1988. I bought a place for $388,000 and spent some money on it and sold it and then moved further up the street. But I was pretty close to Stirling Highway then and gradually moved my way closer to the river. And then I built a house and... uh, We've been there for a long while. I've been selling in the area for 37 years, so I know pretty well. I've been living in the area since 1988 with my own house, that is. I was renting there beforehand, and I absolutely love and believe in the suburb. I think it's quite unique in Perth. Oh, yeah. And uh, being such a small shire, it always traditionally had very low rates and very low administration and close to all the schools, close to the ocean, close to Frio, and really not a big deal getting to the city. Mac, tell me about the people that 
generally are trying to get into the suburb these days? As we said, not a lot of volume, but is there a general profile for the, the is it a single person or a young family or a more uh, mature couple who have had the kids move on? Who's normally moving into the suburb? I've always found it comes in surges and it came in the, uh, in the mid to late 80s. I can remember when lots of people had made money on the stock market and they were all quite young, newly married, kids one or two years of age they came in and, and paid everything i remember things were going for about 350 to 400 thousand dollars and they they all came in and the surges there i think at the moment it is the best value top-end property in australia what you can do is buy land or land value let's say you do an, an appraisal on a property a house plan the land is basically what you might get in four or five streets back from the ocean mm. in cottesloe price per square metre, and you are in a, in, a, in a most amazing garden environment close to the river and, and you know, arguably some of the most successful people in Perth. That's very true. That price per square metre, if you actually look at it on how much square metreage you're getting mm. and the price you're paying, uh, because these block sizes are generally so big, mm. it's sometimes quite uh, unbelievable the differences, as you said, compared that compared to an apartment or compared to something on on the coast where it's a different lifestyle altogether. But uh, most people would recognise that this probably should be one of the more expensive per square metre places in the country. I can understand why Cottesloe is expensive. It's the beaches, of course, part of our whole uh, ethos. Our ethos it completely. Yeah. Uh, but once, if you go over the primary dune, in other words, back from Broome Street. It's not as if you're in something that's spectacular. It's very, very nice, and they've got wide avenues and things like that, but you're not as if you're really on the beach, and uh, that's the price, same price per square metre as it is in Peppermint Grove at the moment. Now, we've sort of prefaced it already, uh, but I still need to ask the question. Development opportunities, is there any, do you think there ever will be any? Look, the state planning have tried to enforce uh, Peppermint Grove to have more density, mm. And there's spots where they can do it, but they've already been developed. There's lots of apartments and things like that that were done years and years ago. Mm. But I, it, I would be very surprised if you would be able to get too many more small blocks. Warren Anderson and the bungalow site, which was a famous development, is the only development that I've seen in Peppermint Grove where they have contemplated higher density. So he, he's done it, but I haven't seen it since. I wouldn't think it's on the, on the agenda. I think further down Stirling Highway where there's a lot more amenity, a lot more walk score for people to have that accessibility as a change-up for moving out of the square meterage is probably where it's more appropriate, just like where they've had the City of Nedlands rezoning on uh, Stirling Highway there and they've got Nedlands Square coming in. That's probably where it's more appropriate to have that density closer to the rest of the community. Well, either side of Pittman Grove, you've got Claremont and Mosman Park Mm. and those places are doing the developments. You'll see the big new development that's going on in Claremont right on the Pittman Grove border. There's been other ones in North Fremantle and Mosman Park where people have been able to downsize without feeling like they're travelling to another suburb altogether. Yeah. That's just nearby. Mosman Park's not far away. That's got a, a long association with that Pittman Grove, part of the river and all the rest of it. So those things are, are going on around it. But I think when I look at all the people who are just wandering around with kids and everything and their pets and so forth around the area... I think they like the sort of quiet garden atmosphere. Look, it makes a lot of sense, and it's in line with what I think people's expectations are. Uh, last question, Mac. We ask every number one agent this question. What's the median house price in your suburb? And if you had that in your pocket today, 
what could you and would you buy? Uh, it's three and a half million yep. um, is what it is. But look, there's so few transactions that go on. Uh, Trent, the uh, you could do ten transactions in as an agent, in, and you'd be the number one agent, depending on how, so, uh, how how big the transactions were. I would get something in the middle towards View Street, in either Irvine Street or, or Keene Street or something like that, on a 800 square metre block, and have a nice two-story home on it that was uh, that maybe had some potential to improve, renovate, maybe something like that. Uh, but I think that, that, that that's what I would buy with it. Mac Hall, thank you very much for coming in and talking about that very unique suburb, uh, Peppermint Grove, and go and uh, grab another few more suburbs and we can have more, more conversations. Appreciate it. Look forward to a trend and enjoyed it very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!